I've just done a podcast with six hippos as an audience. <laughs> it's been amazing. It's amazing how they're going forward. Eh? Yeah. They're literally just sitting here watching us. So much for the, statistically speaking, they're the most <laughs> dangerous animal to humans. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, you. <laughs> That's incredible. Hello and welcome to the October episode of Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think the natural world is incredible. Sometimes when feeling a little balmy, roaming wild amongst hippopotami, I get to speak to those people who are, that's the worst one yet, I get to speak to those people who are dedicated to or inspired by the natural world. This is the final episode of a series of very special podcasts that I recorded whilst living in South Africa at the beginning of the year. But as you have already heard, it was perhaps the most exhilarating. For if talking to the director and general manager of the Sanborna Nature and Wilderness Reserve wasn't enough, I was also in the very close company of six increasingly inquisitive wild hippo. Sanborna is a game reserve you can visit. It is about the size of the Isle of Wight. You can stay there and go on game drives, etc. But as I discovered, it is far, far more than simply a safari. It has existed for 21 years. Paul has been there for 20 of them. And it is now operated as a not-for-profit conservation organisation. It is doing incredible work transforming what was once farmland in the Little Karoo into an awe-inspiring nature reserve with free-roaming wild animals. Black rhinos, white rhinos, mountain zebra, riverine rabbits, cheetahs, lions, the aforementioned hippos, the list goes on. But also, it possesses geology and botany that leaves you breathless. The succulents, for example, astounded me in particular. As rewilding projects go, it is truly something very special. Anyway, as you will hear, Paul's ambitions are substantial and intoxicating, and I'll leave it to him to say more. So, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Paul Vorster. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw, when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. You ready? Yeah. Great. Okay, so who are you? And tell me a little bit about your background before you got to Sambona. I think from a, you know, from a young age, I've always been interested in nature. I got the opportunity to actually explore quite a bit with my folks. And my dad comes from a farm in the Eastern Cape. Both my, my parents have always loved nature and been, in, you know, being out there. I think that, that actually filtered through to me, you know. Yeah, so I've, I've been interested in nature, not... Being 100% sure where I was going in school, then the opportunity came up to go and study nature conservation, which I, I really jumped into and thoroughly enjoyed. And was it the big animals, or was it the botany, or was it the geology? Was it the interconnectedness, or like every the problem with being British, talking to a South African, to an audience of probably predominantly Brits, but we've got an international audience, mm. is they presume that why oh, you're talking to her to man in South Africa, he's from the Cape, then he must obviously be obsessed with with lions and great whites and yeah. but the truth is that the botany is astounding. Like in my few days here I've seen things I, I couldn't even have imagined before arriving. 
and the, geologic, the geological difference across such a broad country is amazing. So I guess for you, what is, what is it that sort of you really loved? This is where you say lions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's the interesting thing. You maybe have this romantic idea of you, you being out in the bush somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's the savannah or up in the mountains or, you know, East Africa or whatever. And maybe as a child, we have these iconic ideas of conservation of the Kruger National Park or Shushloom for Lozi or, you know, just what people see is sort of African television, if you want to call it that, you know, mm -hmm. you've, and, and if you had a bit of exposure to that and you've traveled across the continent, then, then it adds to it. But when you start studying it, and you start living that passion, then, then things start really becoming more interconnected than what you would have ever, I think, anticipated. So just the wildness of the continent, I think, drew me to the conservation side of things, whether it was a romantic thing or a big animal thing, which is all part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but then it got shaped in a way that I never anticipated. You know, I never thought that I would be, you just made reference to this botanical diversity that we have. And I think it's not just on the continent, but if we zoom in to where we are now, sitting on San Borna, mm -hmm. You know, there are things that we, we still haven't identified or found or we're learning on a daily basis. I made a comment earlier about the seasons and mm -hmm. how we think we know something and then yeah. we realize that we don't. Yeah. So I think that's what really, you know, getting to become a little bit more familiar within your study field, um, you realize that you just, you'll always be on a learning curve, which is amazing. It's a big privilege. So you mentioned Sambona. What is Sambona? Sambona Wildlife Reserve is a... It's a large conservation space, privately owned in the Western Cape of South Africa, in an area that we refer to as the Little Karoo. So we're in the southwestern corner of the Little Karoo. It's a paradise of succulents and mountains and vast open spaces. So the Little Karoo, I think I read, was 300 by 100 miles big, something like that? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but probably around about there, yeah. So when you say Sambona is big, how much of the Little Karoo is Sambona and how big in... In layman's terms, would you say it is? In layman's terms, I think is a good reference. Uh, I've heard before that we're probably about the size of Singapore or the Isle of Wight. Okay. It's about 600 square kilometers okay. in size. So, yeah, it's a small chunk of land in the bigger scheme of things, you know. It's, uh, but, but when you take an hour and a half or two hours to drive from the one corner to the mm -hmm. other corner in your day-to-day -day work, then you... You know, you probably get familiar with, with those distances, but it's a vast piece of land. Yeah. When you realise that it's an area the size of Singapore, but there's maybe, I don't know, there's three main lodges that people can stay at, but there's a few other private residences elsewhere. But it's like, there can't be more than, including staff, maybe 300 people who are inside yeah, any one time. Much, much less than that. Yeah. No, no. No, we, much less than that. But if you're looking at, from a guest perspective, you know, bed ratio, we've, say, 60,000 hectares or 600 square kilometers and and we've only got like 54 beds sure that we can that we can sell you know so per bed you've got exclusivity of over a thousand hectares per <laughs> each per person <laughs> per person if you want to call it that so <laughs> i love the idea that you choose your bed when you arrive and you get your your little plot of land and you only get to see what's inside that plot so you might get a giraffe if you're lucky yeah <laughs> more, more than likely you'll get absolutely nothing at all but if you don't get those big things, then you still get yeah. exposed to the landscape and these, these botanical wonders and the geological, you know, spaces. So, well, let's let's start with that. Tell me about the succulent Karoo and what what makes that so interesting? Because it is the botanical that sort of I've fallen in love with whilst I'm here. I, I came here from a very productive corner of the 
South African landscape where it's the Zululand bushveld, you know. Uh -huh. You get a dry winter, then there's dry grass in the landscape, and then usually there's a fire and, you know, towards the end of winter. And in springtime, it starts raining, so there'll be new green growth in the grasses and the trees start flowering and, you know, you've got a green, hot uh, summer thunderstorm related kind of a system. And then you go into autumn, the leaves fall off the trees and you go, you sort of repeat that cycle annually. Yes, they go through through wet and dry spells, but it's a system that's, I think, quite well known. If you, it's very similar to the African savanna, East, you know, East African kind of landscape that people familiarize with. If they just familiarize with that, you know, what they see on television, if you want to call sure. it that. But when I came here, I realized how little I actually knew and what, what was truly remarkable of the space is we're sitting sort of on the northern side of a, a massive mountain here behind us and to the south of the mountain, it's like a, a winter rainfall area, total different biome. You spent some time there this morning. Yeah, I was there this morning. Sort of shelled or Nostrfeld. Surprisingly lush. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I know we're just coming off the back of summer, so I would have thought it'd be a bit dried out. There's the hippo again. Yeah, and then if you if you come over the mountain that you've driven through now, oh, that the way, gorge yeah, is incredible. It's beautiful. Chris was telling me that I think Ian Player went through that the first time and said that there was some kind of spiritual realization of of a new world to sort of experience. And yeah, I think Ian Player and Magubun Tombelo and what they've done it's a total different conversation on its own. You know, it's such a valuable effort that they've ploughed into this landscape. Um, but yeah, he did come through here yeah, and. Actually, for, who, for those who don't know, who was Ian Player? He was a conservationist. He started his career as a, as a young, uh, sort of a cadet ranger, I think, in, in the then Natal Park Sport, which is now KZN Ezimbelu, KZN Wildlife. So it's one of our provincial authorities. I mentioned uh, Shushlubim Falozi Park earlier, and he, he was based there. He also was, a, if you want to call it, one of the founding members or in, you know, impact players in the saving the rhino, the white rhino, because there mm -hmm. were only a few white rhinos left in that landscape and they refined the techniques of capture and translocation to take rhinos into different areas where they could, you know, you obviously then do range expansion and you create more habitat for for animals and the translocation at the old days is quite rough and wild. It still is, but you know, then they, they refined it from catching things with <laughs> on horseback with ropes and sure. Trying, trying drugs out, and so now that it's a very refined, very specialised yeah. process. Albeit when you see a rhino suspended from its four legs from a helicopter being flown across a mountain range, exactly. <laughs> you go, that's the refined way? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a large area to cover, I guess. And that's a privilege of being in this conservation world, you know, with the technological development as well, as we've seen from how rough it used to be to where we actually couldn't, you know, what, what do we implement now as best practice? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a privilege on the one side, but it's also a frustration on the other side because we know what we need to do to actually push conservation further in the right direction and how us as mankind need to embrace what we have left. We're going forward in leaps and bounds in certain aspects of it, but on the other side, you feel like you're sort of, you know, not getting there. Sure. Um, but anyways, no, Ian Player was a, was a, you found it with a very good friend of him and a mentor to him, Marco Tumbela. They found it the Wilderness Foundation or the Wilderness Leadership School, I think at the time it was. Mm -hmm. Just um, sharing what wilderness could do to a person and how you connect to nature and how that can change your life positively. So, yeah, I did some time up there in uh, Shushurim Falozi as a young conservationist doing my experiential training but then from that lush landscape I came down here and I got exposed to this summer thunderstorm driven 
northern part of the mountain, the yeah, Sakhalinkuru. So you come through the gorge and you come to the Sakhalinkuru, and it's it's quartzite bedrock, isn't it? Oof, no, this is sedimentary stone okay. predominantly. It's um, mudstones. Um, yes, the, this mountain that we drove through, that's quartzite. Sure. Yeah. But you've got a due to the the very rich geology in the area, it obviously supports, and with the different kind of rainfall patterns, it supports a massive amount of botanical treasures that. You know, that creates this endemism and diversity that we do have here. So it's a really special place in that sense. Hey? For those that don't have eyes listening to this podcast, that was a hippo jumping out and just letting us know that he's here and that he knows that we're here. <laughs> you worried about how close the hippo is yet? Not yet, no. <laughs> but it's very interesting that they came from where they were back there. Yeah, to see to what come investigate going what's going on because we're sitting here next to the water's edge uh, well not really right on it but it's their sense of space you know we know yeah. their area they come to win the water though so we should be fine if they start coming closer and actually coming out we'll get back in there yeah back off a bit but you see there's they've got great sense of hearing haven't they yeah no fantastic they actually i mean in certain references you you hear people saying oh you know these animals don't have a great <laughs> They're the loudest animal, am I right in saying that? They've got something like a... They get up to 170 decibels or something. Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, animal communication is another topic in its own. You know, if you're looking at decibels and what we can hear and what we can't and how do we perceive loud sure. or not so... Okay, so hippos aside, so Sambona and succulents and... Um, Sambona, yeah. succulents, endemism, diversity, you know, landscape. It's actually quite nice to chat to you now. I know that you're leaving tomorrow and it's it's been a couple of days that it's you had here, but... If I met up with you upon your arrival, the space and the vastness and this landscape wouldn't have had time to actually talk to you, you know. And I think we spoke about that earlier at the vehicle there, at the cruiser. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually quite quite nice for me to meet up with you now because you've managed to see... Yeah, get to understand sense, a bit of it. Understand, yeah. And to have seen both the north and the south and to have had a chance to explore this morning and sort of fortunately get away from... There are a certain amount of people here who are here to see the Big Five. Mm. And I think if you were just here for a night and that's all you did, you wouldn't really touch on what's quite so special about this area. And indeed, you wouldn't really get to understand... I mean, hopefully, the guides are doing their job and informing them about what's going on here in terms of the Riverine Rabbit and the Cape Mountain Zebra and the, obviously the Black Rhino Project too. But they wouldn't get to sort of really understand the dense biodiversity that's present and the opportunity to study it yeah. as densely as you will and have done over the last 21 years and will do moving forward, hopefully. Yeah, and I mean, we, we realise that we, you know, 20, 21 years is a very young, very short period of time, actually, mm-hmm. in the biggest scheme of conservation and landscapes, you know, so we... So, sorry, how many years have you been here, you personally? 20. <laughs> You've been here for 20 of the 21 yeah, years that has existed? For 20 years. This March month, you know, is actually 20 years. So how much of the landscape has, have you seen change and in what ways? Is it just... How arid and how over-farmed was it before you moved in and brought up all the individual farmsteads that were here on the land? Like, do you, how close to, in commas, recovery, do you think this land is? The challenge there, and that answer is like, what is recovery? Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, we don't really have a reference of what the space used to look like as a natural space before man arrived. Yes, we've got rock art on the, on the you know, cliff walls here and so on, and we knew that the indigenous people, the sand, or the Kwe, so moved through the area and they lived off the land. But And, and we know that they draw their spiritual animals and, and whatever they've observed on these you know, rock faces as well. But we actually don't have a proper 
recollection or blueprint or inventory, if you want to call it that, of what this landscape would have looked like. Sure. However, in my time here, which is actually a short period of time, I never actually thought that I would be here for 20 years. Sure. I never did. I arrived here knowing the Karoo from spending time in the Great Karoo with my dad when I was a little boy. And I, and I really I reflected on it because it's now been 20 years, you know. I thought about it a couple of days ago and I never mm -hmm. thought that I would be in this landscape um, still so excited by it and still learning so much after 20 years. And, and it feels like we're only sort of starting to move in a direction where we should have been, you know, going into Sure. now, um, knowing a bit more and, and, and realizing, you know, where we could have a positive impact. Is that because you did, weren't a general manager at the beginning and where you think it should go is because of who you are? Do you think you taking charge of this place has meant that it's been more ready to move into a much more front-footed conservation angle? I think I've obviously had a, a bit of a role to play in it, but I think it just, you know, I've sort of opportunities lined up in such a way where when it was started, it was definitely there to tick those, you refer to the big five uh -huh. boxes in the beginning of the time, you know, and, and we realized that this is such a sensitive landscape, you have to do it responsibly. Sure. And we started really doing a lot of research on how to do it responsibly and what is best practice. And because we had no blueprint or inventory, like I mentioned earlier, we had to do it by, by trial and error. And, and we had to realize through the correct research applications and, and questions asked, you know, how do we monitor and, and and is what we're doing now actually the way it would have been or the way that's more beneficial to the environment than what it has been done over the last, say, 200 sure. years? So I think realizing, number one, how sensitive the space is and... He agrees. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and also going through a, a top structural change where the property actually was, was sold, you know, it, it changed hands and... The initial developers maybe had one specific idea, then the, the developers thereafter had another idea, and then it fell into the site, if you want to call it that, of uh, a conservation entity, a, a non-profit conservation entity. Kaleo? Yeah, the Kaleo Foundation. Kaleo. Um, but they've now handed it over to a South African-based non-profit entity, which is the Sanborna Nature and Wilderness um, non-profit company. Which means, you know, they don't own it. There's no shareholder. Sure. They they have an interest in conservation of biodiversity, best practice, establishment of community-related resilient projects, etc., etc. You know, so it. Yes, I feel it's been a great privilege to be a part of the process, but it wasn't because of me identifying certain aspects of it. It's yeah, I'm exposed to it, but we've got such a dedicated team, and a lot of people that's arrived here have stayed for a long time because in time you realize how special this place is and you you realize how much you still can give and what the opportunity and the prospect is. I mean, when I started here, we removed fencing, mm -hmm. you know, to, to take that defragmented landscape apart and try to connect everything again. And, and we removed far over 700 kilometers, I mean, 800 kilometers of internal fencing. Sure. That's a, that's quite a distance of fencing. You can still often see in places all the rocks that were at the bottom of those fences, I think, to stop jackals coming yep. in. And so you sort of get an idea of, of how much of the land has been reclaimed, how much fencing has been removed and what there is and why there is now. Yeah. And you know, at one point I thought we should actually go and scatter those lines of rock. But on, on moving them and tumbling them apart, I saw, you know, you find scorpions and these micro habitats that was mm -hmm. created under rock. And you see how the seeds germinate next to you know, in the shade there, in a little bit of a, of a protected space, because it's also, it's a sensitive environment with a massive biodiversity endemism, but it's a in, 
incredibly harsh and arid landscape. People sure. forget that this is a semi-desert. You know, the way it looks now, it's quite green. We've had beautiful rains recently, but last year, this time, it was a different story. Sure. And so you've got those small sort of short-term nutrient cycles, but it falls part of a bigger cycle, which again falls part of even a longer cycle that we're not even familiar with. Yeah. So, so you know, how would what we do now have an, you know, have an impact in the next 20 years is also very important for us to, to try to monitor. To monitor. I mean, it's worth saying that all of the large animals have been reintroduced, I think. I think there were some ostrich here originally. Yeah, it was, there were domestic animals a lot. And then um, one of the farm portions that we actually acquired and consolidated into the greater, you know, what it is today, had some wild animals on it, okay. some oryx on it, um, right. a few springbuck. You know, the farmers in the old days also had vast camp systems where they could have a few indigenous sure, sure, sure. animals. And, you know, animals also moved through the landscape. There. In the old days, they were like what we call track buckets, naturally migrating herds that moved through an area following rainfall patterns. And, and they would get harvested as they come past for, sure. for, for meat, you know, venison. For bry. Yeah, for bry. <laughs> but yeah, so we, there were small pockets of indigenous animals and I think that's, that's, you know, we only got, actually became aware of what we, what we had in time. You know, sure. like the River Run Rabbit you mentioned earlier, that's a critically endangered little mammal. I think it's the 13th most endangered mammal in the world, you know. We, we realized in time that we had them. We, we knew that they would have or should have occurred in the area, but mm -hmm. then we actually had a, a sighting and, and we could, you know, we could research a bit more of where they would and how, what, what we understand from them in the literature and then we got involved in, in being more of a role player of trying to understand you know, what they require and well, how would our management actions impact on their requirements. Sure. You know? Because if it's such a critically endangered little mammal, you don't want to... No, it's your responsibility impact, you know? to make sure that you don't ruin what you've got. Yeah, we're custodians of the space. You know? How are we they need doing? To leave, it, leave it better than what we get. No, I think through time we also became familiar with with how to look for them and where to look for them. Sure. Um, but we still don't totally understand them. <laughs> That's just internally, you know, within our boundaries. And uh -huh. our ecologist, uh, Liesl, she does amazing work on knowing, sort of by now, what areas they would prefer and what not. And we've sure. got these camera trap arrays that we move through the landscape over time, identifying sightings of river and rabbits. And you know, obviously that you can superimpose on habitat and season and see what you think would be a natural distribution we collaborate with a couple of external sure. uh, projects as well. And we share information, you know. So I think uh, in general, when we started, when we identified that we had River Run Rabbit, you know, that there was a big concern and uh, maybe a great misunderstanding of their representation within the landscape. Mm -hmm. By now, the work that we've done and a lot of these other conservation entities, you know, that focus specifically just on that, like the, look at the hippo there. Yeah, good old mouse. So that's a proper display to us. You worried how close they are yet? No, they seem quite relaxed. They they're displaying, you know. There's no real aggression. They haven't vocalised for a little bit of sure. time, and they're comfortable. How many can we see? Five, six. Six, I think. Yeah. Seems like there's a little one. Two little ones over there. Yeah. So you know, now I think my personal interpretation of the understanding of River Rabbit. I'm not saying they're out of the dock, but I think when we started here and what we what we know now. As people that are involved with River Run Rabbit, looking at the work that's been done within the greater landscape of their distribution, I'm not talking about what we're doing on site, but everybody that works with River Run Rabbit, I think, I think it's a conservation success story. You know? okay. I think people are more aware of where they find themselves, um, their habits, 
um, their sensitivities. So as you become more aware of something, you obviously learn more about them. And I think they're actually okay. Good. Um, so that's an example of a conservation success of something that was indigenous and here. Mm. There are animals that you brought in or brought back, and I, I think you've had to prove that everything was here before you could bring it back, whether it be through cave paintings or through local history or whatever. People, everything has to have existed before you could bring it onto site. So in terms of what you brought on, what's the greatest success conservation story of Samborna? And you, Paul and Samborna. Yeah, you know, the cave painting reference is always interesting. I mean, you can <laughs> see something here today and you only go draw it three months later on another space where you find yourself, you know, so... <laughs> but yes, that has been used in the past. Um, other historical incidences and diary entries of people that's moved through the area as old hunters, for example. Sure. Or tradesmen, um, you know, when they write about a, a, an observation that they made in the early like, 1700s, that was a motivation for us to say, look, the animals that occur here, we didn't know in what sort of state and did they sure. migrate through and so on, but that, that did give us a bit of a guideline on what one what would you could and should bring in. Yes. But, you know, a big step was, for me, I've, I've had an interest in, in predators. I also had the opportunity to do a, a study, a master's degree study, with related to the reintroduction of lions and cheetahs mm -hmm. within this landscape. And before we brought them back onto San Borna, we knew that they used to occur here, just purely through what I've spoken about now and the historical <laughs> incidences. And uh, Talking lions and cheetah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And... and being the first in the Western Cape province, wanting to reintroduce these free-ranging, self-sustaining predators into a system um, where we'd have to manage them. You know, there was obviously a requirement of having a, a proper scientific study attached to them. And yeah, you bring in too many apex predators and you only have a certain number of springbok and then, yeah, you, then you decimate your supply of springbok and then you decimate your supply of cheetah. And not just that, but I mean, you know, the impact of, of the large predators, the apex predators in the landscape, I mean, we're bringing in lions and, and, and cheetahs, but you've got Cape Leopard moving through the area, you've got caracal, you've got other, call it miso predators, you know, smaller things that live off the land here as well. Sure. Like serval and the like. Or? Yeah, caracal, um, spotted genet, African wildcat, honey badger, uh, bat-eared foxes, you know. We, sure. if, if you've got too Another many cheetahs, they're amazing things. And if you've got too many cheetahs, and we've seen an artifact, for example, they're not a miso predator, but our lions and cheetahs, we've observed them killing artifact. We've observed them having an impact on bat-eared fox numbers. So obviously, what you do from an apex predator would have a lot of positive results as well, but there's a, there's a massive long-term impact on the smaller things as well, and the smaller things often make the landscape tickier. So, okay, well, here's a very particular question. I know there are three lions on site at the moment. Two of them are brother and sister, mm. and there are white lions, so you don't want them to interbreed, and they're both 13 years old now, so getting towards the end of their lifespan. Yeah. And you've got one female brown lion, what happens when the two older die? Do you bring in animals to replace them, or does that then disrupt the presence of the existing female? Or, or do you get to a world where you realise that maybe this could be a, a landscape that might, as you say, is more like it's good to see the little things and the smaller animals? Is it, is it a landscape that needs lion here, for example? You know, being so involved with the lion reintroduction and the predator reintroduction into this landscape, I've obviously got my my views and we've identified where we could be successful and over the last 21 years we've also identified where we could be an impact player. Mm -hmm. Now the concept of metapopulation management is obviously not just looking at a species within your own boundaries but it's looking at 
call it the national herd or the larger distribution of the population sure. you know, across boundaries and borders and tar roads and geographical divisions. So yes, we have received lions from areas where lions occur mm -hmm. and we've also moved lions from Sanborna into other protected areas where you know they go and contribute genetically yeah, or keep or the, the genetic diversity rich rather than yeah pinpoint focused and brothers and sisters exactly you know if you look at lions within african context you know they're under threat they, they're severely challenged by fragmentation and war and and drought and human animal conflict and you know non-political will etc mm -hmm. but if you're looking at the lion landscape within south africa you know we we actually as a consolidation if you want to talk at south african metapopulation you know they, they there are very many lions across the landscape sure. um which is a privilege it's sometimes a bit of a, a challenge because you, you might have too many yeah but going back to the the impact player you know we know that this is such an arid space and we don't have a, a even though it feels like a large piece but we can't sustain more than one pride here sure and if you're looking at what we have currently those animals would, under normal circumstances, where you had more than one pride, not have grown up to reach this age because sure. there would have been too much competition. Yeah, exactly. So, so when these animals pass on, we we will we will seriously have to contemplate how we move forward because we know that we only have one pride sustainably mm -hmm. on this site, and we also have become aware where we can have a positive impact in meta population work of other species, such as the cheetah conservation that we've done, been doing, um, the Scape Mountain Zebra product you're referring to, the desert black rhino work that we're doing, you know. So is a lion in the larger scope of the landscape important for us? Yes, it's obviously a drawing card from a tourism yeah. perspective. And that's currently what... what uh, Funds the conservation. Exactly. Everything gets plowed straight back into the efforts here. But if we can... Become a bigger player in certain ways. Yes, and if we can reposition the market out there and we say this is this is what we're conserving these are the reasons then we might get to a point where we say look we rather want to be an impact player in x y and z and and not have lines we focus on cheetahs cape leopard all the other small mesa predators and then these other species that like cape mountain zebra for example and so on so so yeah we we're currently debating all of these sure. points i'm um, excited to see what you do yeah i think the repositioning aspect is is something that we've been doing an introspection an identification of where you could be an impact player not just on species but within the greater landscape and you know we need more land for lions mm -hmm. by all means but we need more land for a lot of other things as yeah. well other species that need it and and i feel in this landscape you know having more land that we can expand and build corridors for say this genetic diverse population of cape mountain zebra that we're a part of establishing um, that's probably more important from a species-related perspective as us applying a lot of effort into lion conservation yeah. and we're only going to contribute X amount. There was a, a woman I interviewed on this a few years ago now who used the phrase disco species to talk about things like lions that could bring in a bit more bang for your buck from the public but wouldn't necessarily do much for biodiversity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell me a bit about the Cape Mountain zebra and why they should be a big draw for ecotourists and help make Samborna, a big conservation player. The hippos have an opinion on this. Yeah, they feel left out. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, lovely. It's echoing from both sides. Mm, I heard. Um, yeah, the Cape Mountain zebra 
If you're looking at their status as a species, they... They are a species and not a subspecies, right? Subspecies. Subspecies. I mean, they look a little bit more like donkeys than horses. I think that's right. They're slightly larger ears, slightly squatter, beautiful white tummies. They're, they're absolutely beautiful animals. Again, I, you know, I said earlier, I never thought that I'll be here for so long, and I never really thought that I would be, become so passionate about mountains. That is Everest. <laughs> they are they're beautiful, and they're so adapted for these harsh environments. But when we started, you know, we knew that plains zebra or virtual zebra wasn't really what would have occurred here. Sure. Um, they require a bit more of a grassy kind of landscape, probably a bit further north and northeast of here. But from a natural distribution perspective, Cape Mountain Zebra, I mean, the name says it all, you know, yeah. they, they used to occur here. And since we started our Mountain Zebra project now, their status have been lifted within CITES and on, on the red list. Um, they're not threatened anymore. Did, um, am I right in saying they only existed on three sites in So, yeah, if you want to really rewind that far, then the three sites were basically the Kamanasi Mountains, here close to Otsuren, the Khamka Berg Mountains, also a protected space managed by Cape Nature, also close to Oteren, but the one sitting on the western side and the other sitting on the eastern mm -hmm. side. And then Mountain Zebra National Park, close to Craddock. So those were the three, call it relic populations. When people realised that, look, the numbers are dwindling, um, that's where they were found. Sure. And, and obviously there was an effort made to, to protect them on site where they were found. And this started how many years ago, roughly? 80. Okay, yeah. so a little while ago. Yeah, a little, yeah, some time ago. But in certain areas, they did better than other areas. Sure. And, and certain management companies or so, you know, they were perhaps more efficient or there was a higher growth of numbers. So they would translocate animals predominantly from the Craddock environment, you mm -hmm. know, at Mountain Zebra National Park space. There was a national park created around for that area for the zebras. And as the numbers increased, they moved them on somewhere else, which is great. It's yeah, a conservation success. It helps with diversity as well. Absolutely. It stops them interbreeding quite so much. And then in time, they also removed some zebra from the Kamanasi Mountains um, as their population increased. It was a slower increase due to the resources being so vastly different. Um, but they would translocate animals and release animals from those two different, call them relic populations, into establishing new areas where mountain zebra could you know, occur and where they used to thrive historically. But there was an isolation of the one population here close to Khamkaberg for some reason. And because being seen as a as a, a subspecies but a different geographical distribution they mm -hmm. were isolated and and over time because of the intricacies of mountain zebra family herd structure they would implode because of how they set up you know they, they're quite strong bonds in family herds the females don't allow the related males to oh, breed so with they them don't, okay and there's something like breeding competition that one has to consider as well amongst males so if you have too many males they can't focus on the females because they'll compete all the time if they have too few males and they're related, you know, they're not going to they're breed. Not breed so, so that's that's what happened at the Khamkaberg population. And, I mean, by then, and it was discussed in the, say, I don't know, 1980s, between 1980s and 1990s, that, you know, if you're looking at the biodiversity management plan for the species, because it's a species of conservation concern, mm -hmm. and it was listed, there's national action that has to be planned for. And it was flagged as, as a problem. What are we going to do with this population? On the other side of the coin, the animals that was translocated from Craddock and Kamanasi, they expanded in numbers and range, and that happened naturally. Which, and that's why it was a success story, because, sure. you know, you instead of occurring you at three different... You paper and off it went. Yeah, they, they would, and they were spreading to the Eastern Cape and the historical references here to the Western Cape as well and, and so on. But this one population remained isolated. So what we've done recently, and, and it's also, it wasn't the plan right in the beginning, but because we assisted with some zebra management 
um, within the province, you know, it's, it's a collaboration between Sanborna and Cape Nature, who's the governing conservation body of the province. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we realized that we had the size and we had the infrastructure and we had the know-how and, you know, we can be an impact player on this. So we, we presented that and we, we got some animals in which originated from that Craddock and Kamanasi stock. And um, as they observed their population there in the Gamkaberg being more under pressure, um, we said, look, let's let's work on something together, you know. So we we actually removed some of the males out of that Gamkaberg population and re-established them onto a, a specific area of Sanborna here in the northeast mm -hmm. of the reserve. And then we recently translocated some females from the south of the reserve, another family group that had that Craddock and Kamanasi relic population genetics. You know, for the first time in this really recent history, the three relic populations have been combined in one location. Uh -huh. um, so from a biodiversity and genetics perspective, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So it's not something that you, you know, you don't stand on a mountain and shout that out to the world because a lot of, I think the world wouldn't really understand that. But for us as conservationists, we know that, and this is exactly that, where can we be an impact player? Mm -hmm. We know that we can be an impact player for making a, a Cape Mountain zebra a disco species where we can we can champion them to create corridors and to facilitate range expansion and landscape conservation initiatives within this area yeah. because of this kind of work that we do. So, you know, where do you pick your fight? Um, where do you pick your battle? I think that's important. We realized where can we be an impact player? We want to know how we can be the best impact player. We want to collaborate with other organizations mm -hmm implement best practice and we want to set ourselves some objectives and achieve those targets and that's quite amazing that's why i said i never anticipated that i would be here for 20 years yeah but you realize you know you see the opportunities yeah. so clear in the landscape you realize that what you're doing could have a, a long-term benefit to the uh, and, and a population locally and then further away exactly and if we're doing it right you know we're just setting the foundation yeah. for great work to happen on top of this, and yes, there are so many spaces within this world and so many properties that do great conservation work. But, you know, if, if, if we can impact like this, I think it's, it's really positive. So, to bring it back to you for a while, as these hippos are getting closer... Well, they are sneaking up. They are us. sneaking up. I don't think, they, they think we can't notice. <laughs> um, yeah, what's the, what's the single greatest natural encounter that you have personally had at Samborna over your 20 years here? You know, when I started my career in conservation, I went to study and as part of your studies, you do experiential training. Mm -hmm. So instead of just doing the, the theoretical work, you have to go to other conservation spaces, either in the private sector or the provincial or governmental sector and get ex experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I did some game capture in certain provinces. I did some other stuff in other spaces and I ended up there in Shishlu and Fulosi where we, that we spoke about earlier. And I was exposed to different kind of management style in a park that has already been established for over a hundred years. And before it was a protected space, it was the royal hunting grounds of King Shaka Zulu. Oh, wow. So he historically protected that space. In so a he could go out there shooting? Well, they hunted with spear and, and oh, wow. knobkiri and hunting pits, but there wasn't, they, well, they weren't allowed to, to have their cattle move into that area because it was between two rivers. And on an annual basis, they would go in and have a big hunt, and then for the rest of the year, they would step out of it. And they weren't, they weren't allowed to actually have an impact there. It's amazing. So there was a small pocket of... And it was never farmed prior to that either. It was always just a wild... 
And that's what's so incredible if you're looking at our larger, longer standing conservation areas, that's either provincial or governmental parks, you know. There's either been a historical sort of protector, protection of the land through the cultural kind of approach, mm -hmm. or maybe in these low-lying areas you had things like tsetse flies, nagana and malaria, you know, fever, sure. that made the development and expansion of us as, as humans and the agricultural development a bit more challenging. Yeah, yeah. So luckily that, those little biological agents... There's nothing like malaria or dengue people exactly. to put you off wanting to live somewhere, is there? Yeah, and I always envision that these governmental officials or visionaries stood on a mountain somewhere and they, you know, they were traveling by ox wagon or whatever it was and they looked behind them and they could see, yes, there's an impact and we've shot the herds and we've plowed up the land and we've tilled the soil and ahead of them they could see this space below us or in front of us is actually quite wild due to fever or... Mm -hmm. Nagana, sleeping sickness, or whatever it is, and and in, but there's abundance. There's a natural abundance and a system that's fluctuating naturally there. And I think that assisted in the creation of that space, you know. And so, what did what did you notice that was there that was different to the? I mean, not just not just the neighbouring farming areas, but the other sort of wilder spaces. Like to have somewhere that it was left alone so much of the year. No, there's bad. a. I mean, if you go into Google Earth these days and you you pan over Africa and you zoom in next to the large conservation areas, there's this hard boundary. You know, wherever there's a fence line, you can see on the left-hand side, if that's included within the park or protected area, that's lush. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, there's this hard boundary and that's agricultural development. So that was prominent even then when I went to Shishu in Velozia, you know, 25 years ago, as a young sort of experiential guy that just wanted to get some experience. But sure. I fell in love, I really fell in love with, with Black Rhino over there. And to bring it back to the question that you asked me earlier, um, when I arrived here, you know, looking at the historical incidences and what would have occurred during the landscape and thinking what we're going to do and so on. We've always said that oh, we, need to, we need to bring back desert black rhino because that's, mm -hmm. this is where they would have occurred, you know, historically. And, and I worked with the, the eastern subspecies, um, Diceus bicornis minor, that's what, what, we, what occurs up in KwaZulu-Natal or Kruger Park or those eastern areas. Mm -hmm. But the desert black rhino, Diceus bicornis bicornis, is what would have occurred here in the Western Cape and Not more in, in the arid lands, Namibia yeah. and in that space. So there in the Korkafelt and Itosha and so on, that's Bakonis, Bakonis, desert black rhino, south, southwestern black rhino. So I've always said to, well, to people, whether it's colleagues or friends just chatting about what you want to do, you know, I've always said that I'd be just incredible if we can bring desert black rhino back into this area because this is you know, they used to occur here. It took a long time, but we realized that in, in 2020. There's a lot of legwork. There's a lot of politics and red tape and egos and all sorts mm -hmm. <laughs> surrounding, a, a, you know, black rhino, or rhinos in particular, but then black rhinos as well. And then if you go deeper into desert black rhino, even more so. But the problem is that, you know, you need, you need range expansion activities to take place. And we were the perfect environment for that. Um, you need a suitable, security yeah. um, you need to I've develop that if you don't have that anti-poaching patrols going on around the reserve over the last couple of days yeah and i don't i'm not allowed to know how many black rhinos there are on site am i yeah it's you know we're already talking about a very sensitive topic here of saying that we've done this in 2020 and there's a thriving population and you know before we reintroduce them i said to everybody involved as well as we need to know what we're going to do with them once we have too many of them. As well. sure. So you've got to think further ahead, you know, you've got have to you think about... Have you shipped out any yet? Or is it no, 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 no. They're still establishing. But in time, yeah, we would have had to identify through, through 
another action group that we're involved with, you know, the Desert Rhino Action Group, is we, we need to identify other areas where these magnificent creatures can go into and you know, use them as a champion species to, sure. to create conservation space. And it would benefit them as a species, but it would benefit the diversity and so many other species as well. So they, um, they browse from bushes, don't they? Primarily, they yeah, slightly hide, yeah, like yeah. the white rhino graze on grasses and the absolutely, lake and yeah. blacks take bush bushes and things like that, trees yeah. and bits and bobs. Yeah, yeah, and we—it's another thing, you know. You know that they used to occur historically, but you didn't know what impact this they would have on the landscape yeah. here, which is so sensitive. But you also didn't know what the landscape, what the landscape's impact would be on them as a species, you know, yeah. and how they would interact with one another within their group structures, etc. So we've got to observe all of that sure. and, and make informed decisions from See, there. I just want to ask you, expansion. are they breeding? How many are there? What's going on? What <laughs> impact have they made? I know you can't answer me. It's really frustrating. <laughs> oh, maybe we can chat about that off the record. But um, <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, how successful are they being? Can you answer that question? No. Look, I'm a no, no. I'm a, I'm an optimist and at heart, and I see opportunity where a lot of people perhaps see see challenges and so on. Um, and I think what we've observed in this short period of time that they've been here, mm -hmm. they through some of the toughest times within droughts and so on, that we reintroduced them into. You yeah. know, um, they they flourish. Survivors. They flourishing. They they. They're really doing well. They're breeding, they're interacting like black rhinos would under normal circumstances with one another. No, they're, they're incredible things to work with. You know, they, it's really, and, and that to me, reintroducing black rhino into a landscape where they historically would have occurred 200 years ago. And we were, you know, we were given the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked hard towards it, but it wasn't just us, you know, it, um, there were quite a few people involved, but that, that to me was one of my I think biggest achievements within my conservation career. And I think for the reserve as well, you know, it's totally changed the landscape of mm. how we operate and and it assisted us in identifying where you know where we could be these impact players. Sure. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first one is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? My first thought was I, I wouldn't mind walking around here. Um, there's a specific area just to the north of where I live on the reserve, which I totally love. It's a, it's a deep valley. And I think it's because we're talking about Black Rhino, you know, they, they love that space as well. But then again, living in a, a semi-desert environment and being a naturalist and conservationist, I've got so many places that I want to go see in the world. I love to explore and compare. So I've got this bucket list of, of spaces, wild spaces, mm -hmm. that I would want to, to go and scratch around in. Come on then, what's the top of that list? I've got a blank check. Sure. You know what, I would love to I'll go... I'll even offset the carbon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd love to go to, to India and find some of the remaining, or oh, Southeast Asia, if you want to call it that, um, rhinos that still occur there in their natural habitat. Sure. I've always, I've always had that dream to, you know, I've worked with southern white rhino and with black rhino, both uh -huh. subspecies of black rhino. And I know that you can go further into the African landscape and you can go find other things as well. But I would love to go to, to India and Asia to see one horned rhino and the Javan rhino and so on. But I want to I wanna work for them, you know. Sure. I don't want to, because yeah, we, you work for them. You yeah. walk and you find and you track and I want to have local knowledge that can that can interpret that beautiful space that they're in and I want to pull the leeches out of my ears kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I, I've always had that, that dream to, and I remember it was different, say, 20 years ago because the numbers were perhaps higher or they were more accessible at the time. Uh -huh. But I've always had that dream to go and, and find the other rhino across the world in their natural spaces and working for it. Sure. Second question. Yeah. Who is your natural history hero? I must say... A couple of things came to mind now as well. We spoke about Dr. Ian Player. Mm -hmm. he, he was a great role model. He's a name everyone I've spoken to. Like, he's someone I knew of vaguely from back home. But the more people you talk to, the more prominent you realise his impact was. Yeah, and, you know, I can say I, I respect, like, you know, Shaka Zulu for having a royal hunting ground because that actually protected certain spaces and locations. You uh -huh. know, I, I, I can say that Sir so David Attenborough, you know, has exposed me to so many things I wouldn't have seen and become aware of uh -huh. um, because I was, I still am so restricted. You know, I've traveled quite a bit in, in this continent, but I haven't actually traveled very far and I'd love to, but you don't always have the means and the ways yeah. of doing it, you know. Also, you've got the 20 year old child here that you need to look after quite a lot. Yeah, and it, it, it does, it definitely does influence your, you know, how you do it, but you can't do the other stuff that you want to do if you're not here either, you know. Yeah. Um, that's why it's such a rewarding relationship, this, because we've been given so much opportunity to be so stimulated within this landscape and to identify one of the young guides, similar to Chris, that you know, uh, Ben, um, he said to me the other day, he said, yes, it must be lovely to make progress. You know, every, every step you take towards your end goal brings you a bit closer to that goal. And I said to him, no, for every step that you take, you actually see a little, see a little bit further. Yeah. And, and that... You know, that, that's why you don't, your work's never done. Sure. I but will. I must say, if I, if I go to, to bring it home, I stayed in the Mokhlodagazan Square, Darville, just on a, as a very short period of time. They're in Umfalozi, and up on the beams there was a stamp that said, I see player Matuba Tuba. Matuba Tuba is a close little town. There. So that would have been the depot point for the beams for that little house that was built. And to walk in that landscape, where you know, that landscape had such an such an impact on Ian Player's, it, it drove his career, you know, it made him what it is, mm -hmm. um, because he, he, he received from it. Um, to walk in the footprints of these legends that you can relate to because you're actually sitting in the house where they lived, or Nick Steele, he's, he's um, one of his friends and co-workers, uh, you know, and Magobun Tombela, you know, they sat on a rock there on a cliff looking over this Zululand wilderness. To sit where they sat and to sort of live that kind of dream, I mean, that's, that's quite amazing. That's closer, look at that display. <laughs> that's closer to what I would probably ever get to Sir David Attenborough, but sure. you know, then you're sitting in your lounge with your children and they just want to see that episode of that series. And he reflects on where he is now and what he's seen and how he's done things and what he saw 20 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago. You know, you just go like, wow, man, that's inspirational. And final question, um, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? And that's a strange question to ask because you've sort of done it <laughs> on a few occasions. <laughs> How far back in time can we go? You can go as far as you want. Because it's going to sound really rough and a lot of people might not understand this, but I mean, what would be the biggest challenge for us as mankind to deal with? Because that's the biggest threat in this world is the amount of us here and the impact that we have on this landscape. So if you think that there's a 
couple of lodge. You'd bring back something to kill us all. <laughs> I was just, just thinking how, how one can reclaim a little bit of the wild spaces. <laughs> so are we talking T-Rex? Are we talking something a bit smaller but that roams in herds and is a bit more like the painted dog that could rip us all down? Something like that or maybe some insect <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> carries some sort Press of a disease a bit disease better. Or <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but someone told me that the, um, the only carbon neutral thing that you can actually do is to kill yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't tried it yet. No, no, but I mean, you can't help but think about that, you know. Not killing yourself, but I've been yeah. thinking about the just bringing down the population a little bit. The impact that we have, and you know how how exponentially it increases within on our watch. You know, if, if we think about what we saw on TV and how our, our telephone systems worked when we were little children, and what it is now, mm -hmm. and how we connect it, and how we expanding, and how we know what the issues are, but we're not really doing anything about it. Well, we we know what to do about it as well, but we're not. You know, you don't have that buy-in. Because it's not a disaster as of yet, you know, it's, yeah. and, and that just makes you go like... It felt like there was a disaster about three years ago now, mm. when the world shut down and lots of people died. Yeah. I don't think we learned a great deal from it, sadly. No, it had an impact. You know, I actually ended up scuba diving up in uh, northern Kuzilu Natal, that's Duana Bay, very recently. And I went there about 10 years ago, also scuba diving, and I, mm. and I said to someone that came here, she was an agent, a German agent, and she said she loves diving. I said, oh, yeah, I've just been scuba diving recently. And she said, did you enjoy it? Did you see much? I said, you know, the, the reef looked so healthy in comparison to what it did 10 years ago. And she said to me, yeah, it's because of COVID. Hmm. The fact that, I don't know, you know, pollution or reef impact or sound pollution on the reef or whatever, you know, but, but there seems to have been recovery and we know if, if we start seeing the documentaries and you're reading the papers there's been recovery but but how fresh in our minds you know has this process been do we think about it in our day-to-day -day walk of life still hey i need to recycle this or i need to minimize my waste or i need to be grateful for the fact that you know or do you actually just carry on and you forget about covid and the impact that it had i think most of us just want to move on were there any noticeable benefits that Samborna had I mean, obviously, as general manager here, you had the trouble of looking after the staff that you you were responsible for. But did the did the wildlife benefit from having fewer tourists coming through and fewer guided jeep tours going? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Look, it's a very sensitive arid space, but but we had the privilege to actually be locked down here, yeah. and we were we we just started this black rhino project, so we had to work with them in that time, and then we also had to, you know, you you the different methods of translocating them you know you can do them on a they call it a, like a sort of a hot release you just bring them in and they get released but off they, go. off they go yeah but this habitat being so different to where they came from you have to give them the best opportunity and make sure that they're in the fattest of conditions when you release them because they are going to be stressed mm -hmm. and having no people around only the anti-poaching guys and the conservationists you know having no traffic having no guests that want to go and see them or that's i think been a contribution to the success of of them just establishing just finding their feet for those first sort of months to a year yeah. you know, with limited human impact and that inquisitive sort of a, hey what's happening the fact that we could commit wholly to the animals yeah we could really try to observe them from a mountaintop and not see them from from close by you know you could just let them settle that i think 
was a was a great benefit. We we I don't think we actually realised how much of a benefit that was to the whole project. Yeah. Fantastic, Paul. Thank you very much. That's everything I need. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. A massive thanks to Paul for talking with me and for keeping me safe from the hippos. And indeed, a big thank you to all at San Borno for making us feel so welcome, especially to Chris, who became my personal guide for the trip and connoisseur for all things gin-related, especially those infused with little Karoo botanicals. Thank you very much, Chris. That's it for my African specials. But as always, should my day job take me to other fascinating places, which I hope it does. I shall endeavour to make best use of my carbon footprint and share with you more incredible stories from those people who are trying to make this planet all that it can be. There's also probably a bonus episode this month, so keep an eye on your podcast feeds for that. But otherwise, we will be returning to more traditional, but no less inspirational, Trees A Crowd Fair next month. Until then, bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.